I'm Kate Mara, and you're listening to the Audible Original American Football, presented by Michael Strahan and narrated by me. Sure, we all have our favorite teams and chase the excitement all season, but just how did football get its start, then explode in popularity? I'm taking you through the fast-paced tale of American football, its central figures, and how, rife with class conflict, football transitions from an amateur sport to one of the most prolific and valuable leagues in the world. The dramatic history is bloodier, dirtier, and more tumultuous than you know. Listen to American football and other great storytelling at audible.com or wherever you get your podcasts. American Football is an Audible original produced by The History Channel, Misher Films, and Smack Entertainment. When people talk about football, war is often used as a metaphor to describe it. There are two opposing sides led by their captains with the single mission of stopping the other side and claiming victory. Like the military, football isn't for everyone. Not everyone is built to stand on the battlefield to fight. But again, like the military, just because someone might not be cut out to play the game doesn't mean there aren't other ways to serve. In the early days of professional football, it was chaos. The war-torn soldiers and their superiors needed order, needed structure, and they would find it in someone who was nothing like them at all. An ordinary citizen that turned out to be anything but average, even if his name was Joe. I'm Michael Strahan, and this is American Football Chapter 3, Gentleman Joe. The year is 1916, and America will soon be dragged into World War I. Yet for all the horrors overseas, American lives are largely untouched. For now. Employment and disposable income are up with blue-collar workers craving a place to go after their shifts. And if you lived anywhere near Ohio at the time, that meant going to see the world-famous Jim Thorpe battle on the gridiron for the Canton Bulldogs. Can Jim Thorpe be stopped, let alone be taken down? These feisty footballers from Columbus... In its first four games, the Bulldogs outscored their opponents 175-0. to But Game 5 that year presented Thorpe's first serious threat. The tough-as-nails Columbus panhandles. Here's legendary broadcaster Chris Berman with a taste of that game. So far, there is plenty of blood on both teams' jerseys, but neither has points to show for. Thorpe, who's used to running circles around defenders, is grinding out the yards and being kicked and punched in the piles. It is a dogfight. Canton is on its own 10-yard line, as the ball pitched back to Thorpe. He tries to swing around the right side. Phil Nesser gets an early hand on him, but Thorpe keeps driving toward the sidelines. Fred Nesser slides in with his brother Al to lay a wicked hit on Thorpe, but the great halfback refuses to fall until Ted, a fourth Nesser brother, sails in to knock the entire pile out of bounds. As John Nesser trails the play, which lands right at the feet of the Panhandle's owner-manager, Joe Carr, a man who knows that when it comes to stopping Thorpe, you can never have enough Nessers. How do you even find these guys? Joe Carr possessed little athletic talent himself, but what he lacked in skill, 
he made up for in passion. Joe went to Catholic school and did well, but his real passion could be found on the local sandlot. Although Joe was too small to be a physical threat on the field, he found other ways to make himself indispensable. Chris Willis, the head archivist of NFL Films. Growing up, Joe Carr was a born organizer and leader. Even in his grammar school days there in the Irish neighborhood, he was unusual. He was a 12-year-old, you know, trying to get all the boys together, would organize the teams, come up with the rules, make them fair. Joe loved athletics with its David and Goliath stories of underdogs rising up to conquer giants. Joe's father, Michael, had traveled to the U.S. alone at age 23, back in 1864, after losing his family to the Great Famine in Northern Ireland. He settled in Ohio, just north of Columbus, in a neighborhood home to a large Irish immigrant community. Michael was a hard worker, avid churchgoer, and sadly, a heavy drinker. Joe Carr's dad worked 12-hour days, so Joe, early on from his father, learned how to work hard. One of his father's famous quotes uh, was, a handful of skill is better than a bag full of gold. Though he had only completed eighth grade, Joe had a lifelong drive to prove he was anyone's intellectual equal. He read voraciously and landed a job as a machinist in the Pennsylvania Railroad's shops where engines came in for repairs across the panhandle. It was a blue-collar job, but a necessary means to an end. He still dreamed of one day breaking free from his immigrant and working-class roots to rise above his current station. When Joe Carr started working at the railroad, he really sort of gravitated towards wanting to be more involved in sports. He was straight-laced, drawn to its opposite, the rugged, violent, foul-mouthed world of -of turn-of-the-century sports. He followed his passion to a second job as an assistant sports editor at the Ohio State Journal. As a reporter, Joe Carr earned a lot of respect. He was very knowledgeable. He knew the games. He knew the rules. Uh, he knew the players. He knew what makes a successful team. Here's sports journalist Jay Glazer. When all the reporters are talking to one player, I'm going to go start relationships with the other 52 that no one's talking to. But I just became known as a, as a trusted guy. But back home, Joe's family life was already breaking apart. His father's alcoholism worsened and many of Joe's siblings flew the coop. When Joe's mother died in 1898, his father slipped deeper into the bottle, no longer able to provide for the family. Watching his father waste away, Joe swore off liquor for the rest of his life. Despite his day job and sports writing gig, Joe ached to develop something of his own from the ground up, something that he could put his own unique stamp on. Here's Chris Willis again. He actually organized a baseball team that he called the Panhandle White Sox. So not only was he doing sports riding, he was running this baseball team among the railroad workers. He's not even 22 or 23 years old, and he's involved much more in the sports scene than some of the older people. But there was nowhere to go with baseball. The sport was too establishment for somebody on the margins, like Joe, to break in. Looking around one day... Joe saw two fearsome men wrestling a steel boilerplate out of a furnace. They were brothers John and Ted Nesser, the same hard-hitting Nessers who had played for the Maslin Tigers in 1906. Here's James Carr, Joe Carr's grandson. The Nessers were really big men, and uh, they were the kinds of guys who did the heavy lifting and the hard, hard, 
hunker down work at the railroad yard, which was tremendously difficult, but at the same time would build their strength. Joe, of course, knew all about that year's title game between Canton and Massillon, and was even present for a bar brawl that turned into a melee later that night. Despite the controversy, the game stuck with Joe. Football got people's blood up. Joe Carr's vision is so underrated. It's hard to imagine coming off the Canton-Maslin scandal to see that the future was still bright. But that unbelievable vision that he had to say, you know what, people and fans and towns will still gravitate to the sport. They still love it. Joe approached Ted Nesser and pitched him on starting a company football team. Ted was only 5'10", but 230 pounds of muscle, known for his ability to take a hit and stay on his feet. Here's Irene Cassidy, Ted Nesser's niece. Uncle Ted had a broken nose 19 times. And when they took him to the doctor, the doctor said he wasn't going to even set it again. You know, he was, after 19 times, his nose was all over his face. Ted smiled at Joe and said not to worry. He'd play. And so would his brothers. Joe had seen John, nicknamed the Wolf, a great quarterback and all-around athlete. But there were others? Ted just looked at Joe like he was the last person in Ohio to get the memo. Yeah, there's also Phil, six feet tall, 225 pounds, an absolute beast in the trenches. And Fred, a towering 6'5", 250-pound vicious tackler with a deadly right hook honed during a stint as a professional heavyweight boxer. And then there's Frank, 6'1", 245 pounds, a hard-cutting fullback who carries himself with the grace of a dancer. And of course, young Al, 6'1", 195 pounds, a kid who learned to fight for scraps with five older brothers. He's not old enough to play yet, but he will be soon. And man, is he tough. Rob Gronkowski knows the feeling. I already had older brothers now that were already working out, that were already playing football, that were already getting the glory of, you know, of the high school football dreams. And I was, you know, younger, so I was looking up to that, and I wanted to be like my brothers. They were my inspiration. Buffalo Bills quarterback Jim Kelly knows what that feels like. Well, I love football because I had uh, five brothers, and uh, we played uh, in our backyard every single day. And when you have come from a family of six boys, uh, being in a tough sport uh, was number one. So always playing tackle a man with the ball. Um, if it had to do with a physical sport, the Kellys were involved. The Nestor brothers were probably the most unique football family, maybe in football history. Six sort of rough and tough siblings who were boilermakers there at the Panhandle Railroad in Columbus. Probably did the most difficult job, rebuilding engines in the heat. They were not to be messed with. Not only did they work hard, they played hard. That was big news at that time. It's funny how that has kind of drifted out of the collective memory of football now. To have six brothers, they were really a draw. That was James Brigham, son of Haven High Brigham, another of the talented men Carr recruited for his team. Joe couldn't believe it. Six strong footballers in one family of boilermakers, they had muscles on their muscles and calluses on their calluses. This is Bill Mulbarger. When you got hit by one of them, you knew you'd been tackled, you'd been hit. They were a good, fun-loving bunch, but when it came to playing football, they got very serious very quickly. They wanted to beat you on brute strength. Legendary running back, 
Barry Sanders. Uh, maybe this isn't the greatest analogy, but <clears throat> when you talk about collisions and things like that, sometimes you're the fist and then sometimes you're the face. <laughs> Plus, Ted felt he could round up enough other guys from the panhandle to make a real go of it. This is Les Sneed, general manager of the Los Angeles Rams. The main responsibility of a general manager is to exhaustively every day try to engineer processes where a lot of highly competent people collaborate, right, to compete. It's really up to the general manager, the front office, the scouting staff to do our part in identifying players and try and acquire those players to help our coaching staff be very successful on those Sundays. Joe was over the moon. Not only did he have a team, he had struck marketing gold. Come for the Boilermakers, stay for the Haymakers. Six Nessers for the price of one. Now that was worth the price of admission, provided, of course, the six massive brothers didn't end up killing anybody on the field. A lot of times the home team was pretty well beat up. The train would be moving and they would be running like sons of guns to catch up. And they had rocks and sticks in their hands. Of course, the fans were chasing them to beat them up the way they beat up their home players. Rob Gronkowski, again. My dad always taught us to enjoy every single day. Uh, like it's your last day, and uh, we have definitely been living up to that motto uh, for a long time. You know, when you get out there on the field, if you're enjoying yourself out there, you're going to play good and, and be good. Uh, we always just love to compete versus each other, love to bring that energy out in each other uh, with my brothers and I, and it just continued throughout our whole life. In 1907, 27-year-old Joe Carr approached the Panhandle Athletic Board, who had fielded a hapless Columbus-based football team for only a few seasons before folding. Joe wanted to form a new team using the old name of the now-defunct squad, believing it would help fans to have a name they've heard of. Joe said he'd work for free and hustle to cover all salaries and costs from gate receipts. It seemed an endeavor unlikely to succeed, especially given the board's requirement that Joe recruit players only from the railroad but based on Joe's passion and pitch, they gave him his shot at pro football. From the start, what others saw as limitations, Joe saw as opportunities. Joe realized his team was always at work, so he could schedule regular practices during lunchtime. Here's Hall of Fame defensive end Howie Long. When you walk through the doors, you put the helmet on, and you practice, it's about chasing perfect. It separates the average from the good, the good from the very good, and the very good from the great. The great are never content. Uh, you're, you're never at the destination. You're always in the journey. Joe also realized that he didn't have to cover the team's travel costs. James Carr. That they work for the Pennsylvania Railroad, and one of the perks of uh, working there was that they had a free railroad pass so they could go anywhere for free. They would work uh, like five full days a week in seven to noon on Saturday, and then they would go to the out-of-town games. They didn't seem to mind. They loved it. Mostly, the Nessa brothers just would stay in a barn, and it was just as well because they all snored so loud it sounded like a sawmill. And then it was all over again on Monday. The rugged, burly Nessers were an odd match with the more prim and straight-laced Joe Carr. But they each respected the skills the other brought to the table. Here's former quarterback Peyton Manning. I got such great respect for coaches, and there's a unique skill there uh, to communicate with players and 
get players to do things uh, the way that you're hoping they'll do it, uh, there's a real gift there. Joe loved being part of a big family again, a group of brothers who'd do anything to protect one another, on and off the field. For his managerial prowess and strong ethical compass, the Nessers called him Gentleman Joe. Joe threw himself into football like nothing else. Joe Carr's experience as a sports writer and as a team promoter paid off in a big way. Uh, Football sort of grabbed his heart and it sort of stayed there forever. Everything started with the idea of professionalism. He knew that football was violent. That was part of its appeal. But the pro game was still fighting a perception that players were no more than thugs, ringers, and vagabonds out to beat each other to a pulp. Dr. Chris Nowinski. I'm CEO of the Concussion Legacy Foundation. I do think the violence is a big part of the attraction of football. It's just a a feeling that you get when you see two people collide in a big way that you just don't get in other ways. It's a way to enjoy violence or have your brain excited by violence without, in theory, having to worry about the consequences of that violence. At the time, players usually just wore whatever old equipment they had. Barry Sanders, again. I mean, that's how we played. We played the game with no pads, right? At least in my neighborhood, you know, we played the game. That's how the game was played. Um, And it was fun. You know, the hits weren't the same. But there were some scars, but I didn't care. I loved it. You know, I loved every minute of it. Carr bought his team new matching maroon and gold uniforms. When the Panhandles took its first team photo, Carr dressed in a suit bow tie and bowler hat to further project class and sophistication. The message from Carr was clear. This game is respectable. Here is Troy Vincent, executive vice president of NFL operations. So we never want to be in any kind of conversation where our fan or the general public is is questioning the integrity of the game. James Brigham, again. Carr understood what it took to get the crowds excited. Not just the play, but the reporting of the play. Carr was able to exploit that because he was handling not only the management of the team, but the management of their PR. I don't think anybody did a better job with any of those teams. He was just the right person in the right place at the right time. To boost attendance, Carr plugged his team relentlessly in the press. Come and see the Nesser brothers, weighing in at over 1,000 pounds. Each man is bigger, stronger, and tougher than the next. Ladies, get in free. Come see what everyone's talking about. A treat for the whole family. According to the SVP of Communications for the NFL, Tracy Perlman, not much has changed in the past 100 years. What we have been doing is really building the brands of the players and marketing who they are as people. Uh, We hear from a lot of fans, I want to know more about this player under the helmet. We do a ton of storytelling. And when Carr feared low attendance, he'd make incredible boasts, even against far better teams. The panhandles are playing the best ball of their lives and are going to crush their opponents. They will win by no less than three touchdowns. Despite these boasts, Joe also saw that too much dominance came with a cost. Once, after the Panhandles blew out a weaker Toledo team 57-zip, Carr was furious, even with the win. He feared lopsided, non-competitive games would turn off fans and vowed never to play Toledo again. The commissioner of the NFL, Roger Goodell, tells us why. Your opponent is critically important. You can't play yourself. 
So you, you, you have to have a competitive league, and we've tried to really work on competitive balance throughout uh, our history. And many of the changes that went back to Jim Thorpe or Joe Carr, most all of that is, is on the basis of making sure competitive balance stays first and foremost. From early on, Carr wasn't just concerned with his own bottom line. He was concerned with the sport's entire ecosystem. Having been the unsuccessful peacemaker in his own family, Carr now sought to bring the football family together around a giant table with him at the head saying grace. Here's Joe Horrigan, the executive director of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Joe Carr, at least in my humble opinion, is probably the most underrated person in professional football history. He was a sportsman first, but a, a, a visionary, an absolute visionary. Still, Joe had no illusions in those early years. The more he managed the panhandles, the more he saw the challenges to himself and the immediate viability of the game. This is the Washington Post sports columnist and author, Sally Jenkins. Joe Carr takes up an outlaw sport uh, full of ringers and shady characters that were playing under assumed names, brushes the dirt off of it and organizes it and says, look, we've got to be much more like Major League Baseball. No more assumed names. No more ringers. We're going to professionalize and pay people above board so teams aren't stealing each other's talent. Joe Carr really establishes the rules of the business that allowed football to be sold to the public as a reputable enterprise. Joe was confident these problems could be solved, but they required a level of trust, cooperation, and self-policing among the owners who were competing for scraps. They were not ready to be all kumbaya. Carr's Boy Scout image often rubbed other owners the wrong way. For now... All Joe could do was lead by example and hope that others would follow. But football wasn't the only thing on his mind now. In 1910, Joe met a 31-year-old woman named Josephine Sullivan at church. A captivating brunette with blue eyes, outgoing personality, and good sense of humor. Everyone called her Josie. She was the puzzle piece Joe did not realize he'd been missing. Of course, the irony wasn't lost on Josie that she'd fallen for a church-going man whose side hustle competed for butts in the seats on Sundays. Kelly Stafford, wife of L.A. Rams starting quarterback, Matthew Stafford. But yeah, there were, at the beginning, way more challenges than I could have imagined. And that was a learning curve, for sure. But I think the main thing that keeps Matthew and I grounded is the close family and friends that we had, um, you know, in college and in high school that we've kept with us. Um, those are the people that, you know, keep us centered. I think you have to have that strong foundation outside of football because that's not your worth. The couple was married soon after on a Tuesday, the one day railroad workers could take off. Joe and Josie eventually had two children. Their births were the only events that kept Joe from attending Panhandle's games. Joe now had two families to love, but also two families to support. One of his families couldn't win a game at the moment to save their lives. This is Sam Walker, leadership consultant and author of The Captain Class. It all comes down to player dynamics, chemistry, and leadership. Because a lot of teams have the talent. It's the ones that have the will and the desire and the ability to get through those difficult moments. Make sure you keep the players who are really important in terms of chemistry and holding the team together and leadership. And don't let them walk. That's what made the next announcement so much harder to bear. Frank Nesser and the team center said they were quitting the team for good, 
to join pro football's biggest showboater, Peggy Parrott, and his Akron Indians. Joe knew the panhandles were underperforming and Frank could make more money with Akron, but it still stung. Former Pittsburgh Steelers quarterback and two-time Super Bowl champ, Ben Roethlisberger. No team ever stays the same from year to year, whether it's free agency, rookies, um, guys retiring. I think the key for a lot of the teams that, that have continual success is just trying to keep a good core group of people together so that you're not overhauling everybody. You're just trying to add pieces to the larger puzzle that's already still pretty much intact. In Joe's mind, they were a family, and families stuck together. He'd done so much to claw his way out of financial strife and create a stable franchise so the panhandles could succeed. But where had all his hard work gotten him? With a new family to support, a floundering team to turn around, and key positions yet to fill, Joe needed a new trick to survive. So he cooked up the idea of a traveling football circus. The team was already traveling for free on their rail passes. What if they became a full-time traveling team with only a game or two in Columbus? By playing games back-to-back on the road, he could slash costs, letting others pay to maintain a home field or pay local officials. Plus, more games meant more revenue. Even with one less Nesser, Joe knew the team could still draw crowds on the road if he could keep them alive long enough to prove it. Here's Big Ben again. I couldn't imagine uh, never having a home game. You know, you've got to go to a hotel. You just, it's just always something new. You look forward to those home games because you get to, you know, sleep in your bed or sleep in a hotel that you're familiar with. I, I loved playing in front of, uh, of the fans of Pittsburgh and seeing those terrible towels waving. To, to never get a chance to see that would be nuts. Again, Peyton Manning. You know, when you play at home, you, you certainly feed off them the fans and the, the crowd noise that can affect the opponent. Uh, when you go on the road, um, you, you, you feel that passion and the uh, enthusiasm from the fans wanting their team to win. And, you know, sometimes you can use that to, to help you. Sometimes uh, the fans win and uh, just can't quite uh, execute as well. To replace Frank, he brought in younger, faster players. Lee Snoots and Emmett Rue. Rue had a brother, as did another player, Oscar Kuhner. Now, Joe had the chance to market the panhandles as a team boasting three sets of siblings. The impact from all his moves was dramatic. The panhandles finally clicked and started winning like never before. The youth and speed Joe added proved the perfect complement to the strength and power already on the roster. Best of all, when Frank Nesser saw all the fun his brothers were having, he returned to the panhandles, ensuring that half the men on the field might be named Nesser at any one time. And when you have that many siblings on one team, you might gain an edge. This is Les Sneed. There is no doubt that a, a team is not just a collection of highly talented players on independent contracts. And I think that uh, a lot of dynastic teams, uh, they might not have always been the most physically gifted, but as a collective, they played the best when it mattered the most. In 1915, the Handles had their best season ever, going 8-3-1. and one. 
a stat that's all the more impressive given they almost never had home field advantage. Joe was thrilled to have drawn 20,000 fans in total, and all on the road. At least he was until he saw his fellow pro football apostle Jack Cusack, manager of the Canton Bulldogs, pay Jim Thorpe $500 and draw 14,000 fans for just two games. Thorpe was a star, and his presence suddenly made the game viable. Again, Joe Harrigan. When Jack Cusick signed Jim Thorpe in 1915, that put him the king of the castle. He's either out of his mind or he's you know, struck gold. Joe realized he was still behind the pack and that all roads to being the big dog in pro football led to beating Jim Thorpe. The following season in 1916, Carr's panhandles would get a shot to dethrone Thorpe and his league-leading Bulldogs. Considered the game of the year in pro football, it came early in the panhandles' schedule. They had already rolled over their first three opponents and spoiled a perfect season for Peggy Parrott and the Cleveland Indians the week before. Sadly, Fred Nesser broke his hand in that game and would miss the Thorpe matchup. But that still left five Nessers, two Ruse, and two Cuners to make good. When the, when the uh, panhandles came to town, per, they wanted to parade down Main Street with those six Nesser brothers. And it was all a part of the showmanship that, uh, that Kuzek saw, that Carr saw. They were the, the two, two leaders at that point. The two teams went into Sunday undefeated. Advanced tickets were sold at either of a couple Canton cigar stores or a popular local saloon, with general admission costing a dollar and ladies just 25 cents. 4,500 fans settled in to watch what began as an epic slugfest, with the two physical, well-matched teams trading blows and punts. The gang force tackles of the Nessers kept the dangerous Thorpe at bay for much of the game. Here's Rob Gronkowski. I played, actually played with my brother Chris in high school. I played with him, and we loved to dominate together. And we always tried to see who can get the biggest hit of the game. We always competed on who would get, who would, who would level. It was like a double competition, like how many hits you could have and who had the biggest. The question was, who would draw first blood? Again, Chris Berman. There's Jim Thorpe, buried under a pile of Nessers. Anybody else would stay on the ground, but Thorpe? Oh, no. He's up and ready for another bruising. These fans here at beautiful league field in Canton, Ohio, are bearing witness to a titanic battle between two of the best pro teams football has yet assembled. So far, the massive front lines have limited yardage on both sides of the ball. Everyone is feeling it. Everyone but Thorpe, that is, who's put the Canton Bulldogs within striking distance. The ball is snapped. It's Thorpe again. How does he still have that much gas? He blows past two Nessers, crashes to a third, and fights what's left of the family into the end zone. 18-yard score, Canton. The Panhandles cannot believe it. How many Nessers does it take to stop Jim Thorpe? Turns out, the answer was more than five. Howie Long knows the feeling of playing against a guy like that. Barry Sanders was as great a running back as I've ever seen. He's the only guy that really, in the moment, you thought, damn, this guy's in a league filled with the greatest athletes in the world. Barry's different than everybody else. And here's Barry Sanders. You know, and being a great running back in this, this game is something that 
you have to continue to do, at least in my mind anyways, um, to earn your respect. It was always new guys coming into the league whose, whose respect you had to earn. Ever gracious, even in defeat, Carr told the Canton Daily News that the Bulldogs were, quote, the greatest football team I've ever seen. Acknowledging the Nesser's toughness, Thorpe said that of all his years playing, if he ever felt a tackle, Ted Nesser was the one who made him feel it. Thorpe had dashed Carr's shot at a perfect season against Carr's best team. Taking stock of the loss and the moment, Carr got a glimpse of his limitations as a coach. But he also, looking at the rabid fans, the quality of the game, and the impact the stars were having on the field and off, got a sense that a larger story was forming, one he wanted to be the author of. This is Roger Goodell on his own aspirations. I said that when I left college to my father in a letter that, you know, I'd want to make him proud and I'd like to be commissioner of the NFL. It was probably a somewhat of a far-fetched objective or goal, probably a, a big-time dream. I just wanted to be part of the NFL. I believe in the quality of the game. I believe that it has a huge impact on our society, well beyond the playing field. At the end of the 1916 season, Ohio's pro game was maturing, but rising player salaries, frequent player poaching, and the ire of colleges was still rampant. Carr loved his panhandles like kin, but wondered how much longer he could promote the aging Nessers as the future of Ohio football. The eldest, John, was already 41, and the days of Sandlot scrappers was giving way to post-collegiate superstars now flooding the pros. As devoted as he was to his team, his real dream had always been to build something that would outlive him that would transcend his lot in life. Coaching couldn't be it. But perhaps, a league. Yes, that's what he was meant to do. A professional football league. Again, Chris Willis. The sport eventually sort of just absorbed him. He saw the future they could have, like uh, this could be a great spectator sport. It just needed to be organized. He was always quoted that pro football was gonna be bigger than Major League Baseball. But before he could act on his vision, real combat returned as America entered the First World War on April 6, 1917. The sporting world slowed to a crawl, then came to a complete stop. Young men were called into service and teams that continued playing scrambled to find replacements, attract crowds and stay in business. No sport was spared. Baseball, boxing, horse racing, everything took a backseat. With a family to feed, Carr took a job selling cars for the Curtin Williams Automobile Company, Columbus, Ohio. Who could afford dreams when the entire world was at war? If that wasn't bad enough, a worldwide influenza epidemic waged a war all its own. An estimated one-third of the entire world population caught the Spanish flu. The virus claimed 675,000 lives in the United States and 50 million lives worldwide, nearly eight times the toll from COVID. Joe had to wonder if it wasn't time to put his sports dreams to rest once and for all. Sports historians say that World War I caused this manpower shortage, but it was really the pandemic that shut down sports. Uh, they literally had uh, communities ban large gatherings, which meant sporting events, movie theaters, and, and the like. 
during that year because of the Spanish flu. Here's NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell. We just got done playing through a pandemic. Uh, you know, those things, they're, they're all difficult and they're all challenging. And, you know, I guess when you're going through it, like any problem, it's always harder than, you know, it is in the past. But then, finally on November 11th, 1918, Germany became the last central power to sign an armistice with the Allied forces, thus ending World War I. Like a great young team on the gridiron, America had been challenged, struggled mightily, then emerged victorious. And by 1919, the country was in a celebratory mood, drunk on its own new economic and military might. Joe looked around and realized he'd survived yet another crisis. He was ready to run with his vision of taking pro football to the next level. Sadly, his closest ally had decided to move on. Jack Cusack sold the Canton Bulldogs to his friend, Ralph Hay, a successful car dealer and renowned promoter, self and otherwise. I think most people were surprised that Jack Cusack wanted to get out of pro football, including Joe Carr. But I think with World War I ending, he's trying to reevaluate maybe some certain things. Hay fit the salesman stereotype way more than Carr chomping on cigars, talking fast, and taking advantage of every angle he could find. Ralph's goal was to build up the Bulldogs, primarily to publicize his car business. He spent lavishly to restack the team with former college stars who could support the one and only Jim Thorpe. Hay and Joe Carr's personalities clashed immediately, their relationship icy from the jump. Carr had brought back the panhandles for another season, but when his team met Hayes Bulldogs that year, only one Nesser was playing. The panhandles get blown out 40 to 10. So Ralph was a little disappointed and the gate wasn't very good. You know, he's shelling out a lot of money to field a team and paying Jim Thorpe a decent amount that he sort of was turned off by Carr. As the grim season unfolded, Carr focused on laying groundwork for a proper league. But somehow, news of his plans leaked and the college football powerhouses warned players and fans to avoid any new pro league until the game cleaned up its act. Always taking the high road, Carr put his plans for organizing a league on hold while he regrouped and earned some money for the family in the off-season selling cars. He was blindsided when Ralph Hay, his nemesis over in Canton, announced at a Cleveland luncheon that the Bulldogs would be at the forefront of a new pro league. Carr was incensed, not least to have heard the news first in the press. If there was going to be a league, there was no question he was the only man to run it. But the news would only get worse. On September 17, 1920, Hay and his star player coach Thorpe invited reps from 10 teams to lay out plans for the new enterprise. The first meeting that helped establish what would become the NFL uh, in September of 1920 was a uh, held at Ralph Hayes showroom, and his office was a little bit too small for the group. Uh, so they went out into the showroom, you know, they sat on running boards and drinking beer, although this was uh, at the time of prohibition. They helped establish what now is the biggest sport, you know, in the world. But one absent owner was Joe Carr. We don't know if he didn't get invited, uh, but maybe the frosty relationship between Carr and Hay, because you knew Carr would want to be there. After the meeting, the group announced they had officially formed the American Professional Football Association. 
later to be called, yep, you guessed it, the NFL. They had beaten Joe Carr to the punch. Joe was fit to be tied. Not only had they organized an official league, they'd excluded him from the discussions, despite his years in the game. Had they really seen him as too stuffy to be allowed into their boys' club? Had his prospects, hanging on to a team out of loyalty more than sense, really fallen so far so fast? But Carr was yet to hear the kicker. The managers present asked Hay to be the first president of the new league, but he declined, suggesting none other than Jim Thorpe instead. Hay knew Thorpe's name would add instant credibility and marketing oomph to their new undertaking. It's as if the NFL elected Tom Brady to be its next commissioner while he was coaching the Bucks and still playing quarterback. Hay and the others couldn't have cared less about conflicts of interest. They were thinking about sales, from tickets to cars, and their decision to elect Thorpe was unanimous. Most of the papers, including the New York Times, led with Jim Thorpe is a pro football head. And, uh, but Jim Thorpe was not an administrator. He was an athlete. And so, so I don't think it rubbed Joe Carr uh, 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 well. It was one thing for Thorpe to beat him on the field. But in the boardroom, Carr was dumbfounded. Not only was he cut out of the league he had dreamed of, but the world's most gifted athlete stood in his way once more. In the end, Joe was somehow able to wrangle his ailing Columbus panhandles into the league for its first game a month later. Still, he had to accept he was not part of the new organization's inner circle, a bitter pill for him to swallow. But the new APFA would soon grasp the enormity of the task it had taken on, and the depth of the problems that could quickly destroy it. They'd need more than a famous name to lead the league into the future. In fact, they'd need someone who knew more than Joe Carr about what it meant to be spurned. Pro football's first black star, Fritz Pollard, the man known as the Human Torpedo.